The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to episode 4 of The Wizard Files, our series of behind-the-scenes interviews with former staff members of Wizard Magazine with a mission to get the inside scoop on how they created our favorite guide to comics. I'm Adam. And I'm Michael. And this time around, we're opening the file on a true wizard veteran, a man whose work goes back nearly to the beginning of this historic publication and whose influence was surely felt between the pages and on the World Wide Web. It is our great Great pleasure to welcome Buddy Scalera to the podcast. Hello, Buddy. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for including me. This sounds fun. It is really exciting to have you with us. And, you know, we've had so much fun talking to Wizard staff members, and we've been getting a lot of interaction on social media, people wanting to share their stories. And a former cohort of yours, Russ Wooten, sent us your way. And so we're glad that we got a chance to connect. So big thanks to Russ. <laughs> Russ is awesome. He's, he's such a great guy, and, and it was fun to work with him. I mean, Russ and I met on CompuServe in the dark ages of the internet. Wow, and CompuServe, that's a throwback. CompuServe. Yeah, I met Russ in the message boards, and then uh, when I had an opening on my staff at Wizard, I brought him in, and he's probably the best hire I've ever made in my career. He's awesome. Wow, well, we'll certainly get more into those details of that working relationship, but obviously, Wizard, the guide to comics, we're very interested, buddy. How did comics enter your life? What was your origin story. My origin story. I like that. See that you primed it well. I was a geeky only child and I did not want to read, but my dad was an artist and my mom figured that if I would look at pictures, I might read. And I guess that grabbed me and I, I became a passionate comic book reader and collected passionately and found a couple other kids. We kind of kept it secret because it wasn't cool to read comics back in the 80s. And then just somewhere along the way, went to college. And in college, I had a professor who referenced comics occasionally. And then I had a tipping point one day when fellow named Andy Ball, who worked for many years at Marvel Comics, said he was going to his internship at Marvel. And we were both journalism majors at Hofstra University. And he said, yeah, I'm going to intern at Marvel. And I go, what does that even mean? How do you intern at Marvel? And he said, it, it just it's a job. It's publishing. And then he would come home and talk about working as an intern at Marvel. And then when I graduated, I set my mind to go work in comic books. And I used my journalism background. I was writing for the local newspaper. And any chance I got, I'd slip comics in there, write a feature write an article, started freelancing for different magazines, everything from Comics Buyer's Guide to Comics Values Monthly, anybody who would print my name as a byline. Then Wizard sort of came around right as I was uh, gaining some momentum as a journalist writing in the industry, uh, doing interviews. And they tried, I tried to get on staff and Joe Yanarella, who now is at Bench Report was the editor there at Entertainment Weekly. And he brought me in and had me write a couple of articles and had me interview for a job. And a couple of weeks later, he said, I got some good news and bad news. And I was like, well, what's the good news? And he said, well, we're, we're, we want you to be on staff. And I was like, that is great. And he, I said, what's the bad news? And he said, yeah, the magazine's folding. So that was <laughs> entertainment retailing. And it didn't last, but he, one day he called me back up and he said, if you want to do this project that we're doing, which will put Wizard online. And he saw that I was writing articles for Combo Magazine called uh, Combo Online. And he goes, you're the only person we know that knows anything about online. Would you like to join the team? And I said, sure. So after freelancing for a little, about a year and a half for Wizard, um, I got a job doing Wizard Online. And there was literally no online presence. There was exactly one AOL email address in the entire building. And we just started from scratch. Now, this is interesting, buddy, because, you know, like you say, you were first credited as a contributing writer in issue number 39. This was November 1994, at least according to our archives here. That was the first time you showed up, you know, in the list of staff members. It was a Spawn cover there. I'm sure you probably had something in there ahead of time. The question I have is, what was the situation, a contributing writer? Because I didn't find any features with a byline there. So I'm very curious, what does contributing writer mean at that period of the magazine? Magazine. I gotta tell you, man, you are like some forensic researcher. Oh, he... <laughs> You just noted that, and I'm like, really? That was my, I didn't even know. So I was 
writing for entertainment retailing and I was also writing for something else that Wizard was doing. And they would have you write news capsules. They were called capsules. And you would do these little updates about small indie publisher, what's coming at it. And I, I would imagine that those news capsules were near the front of the magazine, I think. And they were not bylined, but they gave you that little name credit, which was the validation I was looking for and the way in that I was looking for. And it was interesting. I actually remember when the Heroes World Convention must have been in 94. And I found Garab Seamus and I walked up to him and I was like, I want to work on your magazine. And at that point I was writing for all the competition. I write, I said, I write for all your competition. And then he gave me contact information for Hank Bordowitz, who at that point I believe was the EIC. And that must have been my way in the door. No, he was managing editor. So that was my way in the door. And I just took that name credit. And then once I had one person's phone number, that was it. Like, I just was probably relentless. And Joe Yanarella uh, did have a, a printout of a fax I had sent to him, like, detailing my bio and why he should hire me. And one day he did. I mean, that takes some guts to go up to Garab and be like, hey, I work for your competition, but I want to work for you. Like, that's ballsy. I mean, yeah. that's pretty amazing. What the hell was I thinking? I mean, <laughs> you know, I just knew what I wanted. And I was, I remember there was a job, I believe in Seattle. With the comics journal i was applying for that i was applying for anything i could find i would have had to relocate to seattle to take that job but i wanted to work in comics in the worst way and my only skill was journalism i had a degree in journalism so i just thought you know what if this is my way in then this is my way in and it was funny i remember saying to my mother Ma, i got a job working for a magazine jobs that's so good that's so good you got on staff and i said i'm going to be working online with email and she was like what is online and what is email <laughs> <laughs> there was literally one email address at Wizard, and we all shared it. It was WizardTGTC, Wizard the Guide to Comics at AOL.com, and that was the first Wizard email address. That's fantastic. I it. love it. <laughs> Now, speaking of the guts it took to walk up to Garib, so at this point, you know, we're talking 1994, so how influential would you say Wizard was in terms of the comic book industry at large? You know, just what was the evidence you could see of that as you started working and started contributing there? Oh, that's a good question. And and I, I will tell you that as somebody who is working essentially for the competition, you just could not miss the fact that Wizard was dominating the conversation. The magazine that I was writing for at that point, and I forgot what the magazine was prior to that, but it was it became Combo Magazine. But I was also doing, as I noted, Buyer's Guide and Comics Values Monthly, and none of them had the sheer cult personality and influence that Wizard was having. And I just knew that that's where I wanted to be. And it was wonderful. I mean, I was driving distance to their office. And to me, it was just, I had to get there. And they just dominated. And they looked the best. Their layouts looked the best. Everything they did was exciting. And it was just evident that if you wanted to be a journalist working in this field, chronicling, and that's what I wanted to do, you needed to be at Wizard. And so I set my mind to get in there. Now, what can you tell us? Some of the names, especially those your know, first years of Wizard that just seemed to dominate the magazine were Patrick Daniel O'Neill and then Pat McCallum. Just in terms of their contribution to the Wizard, they seemed to be the driving force behind the scenes. W would that be the case? Well, I didn't know Patrick Daniel O'Neill. I don't remember if he was in the office when I was going there as a freelancer, but I did see Pat for sure. And you, know, you can't miss Pat. He's like six foot three. <laughs> He's a really big guy. So, you know, I got to meet Pat and he was, for me, the primary creative influence. And he had an amazing connection with the readers and really understood what we as comic geeks wanted to read about. And I don't know what his background was in terms of journalism, but he had an amazing sense of news and journalism and how to write features. And I remember him giving me feedback and I was amazed at how in touch he was with the way the magazine needed to be formatted and structured. And he was a major influence there. Now, I, I don't recall what his title was when I came on board. You probably know better than I would. But you know, by the time I left, I mean, you know, he was the top guy in charge. And super smart, really dynamic, and knew just how to pivot with the industry and was truly a tastemaker. And then there were other big voices 
there at the time, you know, Brian Cunningham and Matt Senreich and Jim McLaughlin, you know, these were people who really helped create the voice of the magazine. And, and they weren't the same voice, but when the magazine came out, it was always exciting. I mean, in a stack of comics that would come out, I don't know about you, but like Wizard would be the first thing that I would open. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that you just you wanted to have the sense of fun that they brought. Like it got you excited and primed to enjoy your comics because you're like, oh, these guys are talking about it. They're joking about it. They're teaching us things. Yeah, there was just there was so much to absorb in every single issue. And obviously you, you know, before you were in the online space, you were contributing there. I'm very curious. What were some of your favorite projects or some of your favorite pieces you got to submit? Did you ever get to propose something before you became in charge of the online space? space and say, hey, I I thought about this. And they said, go for it, buddy. For me, the goal was to get on staff. And I wanted to eventually write a cover story. And while I was working there, I actually got to write two cover stories, which to me was a big thrill. And those stand out in my memory. I did the uh, launch, the rebirth of the Valiant Universe when Fabian rebirthed the Valiant Universe. Oh, through acclaim. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And I got to go there for the two or three day work session. I got to be uh, the reporter. I got to art direct the famous photo of them walking across the street like Abbey Road. I think the <laughs> pilot was barefoot. And I got to do the Marvel versus DC crossover with and interviewed uh, Mike Carlin and Mark Grunewald. And I think it was Mark Grunewald's final interview before he passed away suddenly. A little bittersweet there, but certainly those really stand out as moments for me where, and I got to interview Boris Vallejo also. But I got to meet my heroes, my comic book heroes. I got to really get to know these people. And when you get to know them and get their home phone number and then you start going to the parties and the Marvel Knights parties that Jimmy and Joe were running, it was an amazing time. The parties and the get togethers and the camaraderie. And I'll slip in a little tidbit there that we had a lot of video cameras around. Garrop had a camera in the office. We filmed a couple of short films, a lot of comedy sketches, Wizard TV that never got off the ground. So there was a lot of interesting things happening. Oh. I, I hope I'm seeding you guys with episodes for the future. Absolutely. I want to find those VHS tapes. That's what I want to find. <laughs> yeah, my, my, Michael's a, a film teacher, so he's got that whole background. His Michael, ears me, perked yeah. up Michael, for sure. Let me just tell you what we do. We, Garib had a, a super VHSC on the shoulder, electronic <laughs> news gathering camera that got nice and hot when you put it oh, against Oh yeah, and they're not light either. They're not light, and we shot a lot of well-known comic creators from Wizard, which was like a boot camp that were featured in this. Jimmy Palmiotti, Nelson DeCastro, Brian Cunningham, Mike Fasolo, Arlene So. We were all in these and we shot them in the office and we shot the B-Files because the X-Files was hot and we shot our own parody and then we did a follow-up called B2, Laundry Day as a rip-off of T2, <laughs> Judgment Day. And we did comedy sketches and I actually shot quite a bit in the office, just walked around with Garib's camera and he had one of the early, early, early digital cameras he paid a ton of money and he handed it to oh, me yeah. go take photos and i would shoot photos of the staff so i have a whole bunch of low res one megapixel yeah yeah yeah, oh, they yeah. Were, yeah and they were saving to essentially a, a floppy disk yeah uh, the way it was but we just thought it was amazing so there there is a lot of footage and photos of oh, early wizard i just imagine somewhere the, <laughs> man if we could find those holy cow that would be wild if we could find those. I didn't throw anything away. We no. Saved, oh. We saved everything. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, but this is interesting. So yeah. So obviously it sounds like it was a fun atmosphere. But ultimately, as we've uh, been leading towards, you gained the title of online editor. This appeared in issue 48. So August 1995. There's a Catwoman, Wonder Woman, Supergirl cover. So here's the question. We, we kind I heard that you were the only guy in the office that knew about being online, but what did you think that title meant at that time? I'm online editor, so you wanted to be on staff, now you're officially an editor. What did that all mean to you? (laughs) It meant that I was one step closer to being the news editor for the print publication. That was my goal. And I didn't see online editor as too much other than it felt to me like 
you know, another name for intern. And I joined the, the company. I'd been working on staff at a different magazine and I left to join Wizard. And I just thought, well, okay, well, this will be the way that I get into the real goal. And they sent me down to this small company down in Virginia, was one building in the middle of a giant open field. It was America Online. At that point, they were just beginning to get some footing. And I got to go to their offices and they would send me down a week at a clip. Wizard would pay for this. And when I got hired, the person who hired me told me, well, one day, you know, there'll be a staff. And I was like, yeah, I, I didn't really care. And they, when I, they hired me, they said, we didn't have enough money to hire a programmer. So... And I was like, so what? And they said, well, you're going to learn how to write code. And this is before the web. Remember, this was before the web. So they sent me down there and I would go down a week at a time to learn a proprietary language that they had at AOL called Rain Man Plus, which was based off of C++, which was a compiler language. It was very difficult to learn for someone who was a, you know, basically a liberal arts creative. But I did learn it, and we would go down there a couple weeks at a time, and it, it was a great learning experience. The interesting thing about Wizard Online was when we launched it, the expectation was, and I'll tell you guys a little secret. You can actually, who cares? It's not a secret anymore. But we had the keyword wizard. At first, we had the keyword comics, and you type into AOL. And the way we got paid was time on the site, right? So you paid $2.95 for an hour. AOL had a, a secret ticker. That if anybody was sitting on the site through their right. through their domain and you'd be like, oh, hey, I'm getting some cash now, big time. And that's what happened. So we started off the first month. Nobody knew we existed. We weren't listed in the magazine. My job was to go find the fans. So I would hunt other boards and try to find them. And at that point, I think D.C. Had initially had a board. And I went over there and, you know, just sort of poached them and go, hey, come on over our message boards and our chat rooms, creating an immediate competitive situation because DC was enjoying being the only company there. We're, we're like, we're, we'll, you could talk about DC. We'll talk about everything but DC. And we'll talk about your Marvel, your image, your Valiant, your Chaos, your Crusade, all those others. And we brought them over. And then I brought the pros over and AOL gave us 50 free accounts. And the first thing I did was I gave free accounts to guys like Jimmy Pomiati and Joe Casada and Billy Tucci. And, and then I one by one train them. We would be on the phone and I'd walk them through it, how to set up their modem, how to do it. And then they got onto the message boards. And what I did was I created this critical mass of pros. And then I knew that that gravity would attract people. And then after the first month, every month after that, we hit the base level minimum and we made money every time somebody clicked keyword wizard or typed in keyword. And we did that. And that was sort of our first foundation of understanding, yes, you can make money online and then We'll talk about the polybag discs later, but the, <laughs> the reality was, was I recognized that giving people a reason to come back was the hook and the pros were the hook. But the real hook was I recognized that the fans were really passionate. And before we had a word for it, now is called user generated content. We created communities. They would create articles. I would hand code them into wizard and we would publish them creating this bit of ownership for clubs and association. We had this wizard club association and they would build up their clubs and they had their content and they were creating the content and I was hand coding it and we were putting it up and they'd be like, Hey, I wrote this or I contributed. And that gave us the gravity and momentum. And once that started, yeah, DC owned the DC conversation, but we owned every other conversation. Yeah, and it's really interesting to think of, of that period because, you know, when you look at the magazine, it felt like you guys weren't, at least in, in that early time, you know, around, around this period, you weren't really promoting heavily, hey, we're online, check out our AOL. Like, it felt like that it took a little while to build momentum and, it's, and definitely it took a little while till we started seeing the email addresses that were coming into Magic Words and things like that. So what was the relationship between the print editorial and now what you were doing and did they want you to have any content other than what the actual users were generating did they provide anything that's a good question and it's interesting you know when we did start there was one email and then we got a second and then we started to want to get the staff on and and the staff was interested and early adopters wanted to get on there. And we created this. Everybody had Wiz in front of their name. So I was Wiz Buddy and there was Wiz Joe and Wiz Pat. <laughs> and we, you know, people made fun of the names, but, you know, they were easy to identify. And that was how the staff started to get on. And we were trained them one by one and people started to get on. And for many of the people who were working there, you know, there were no laptops. People didn't 
all have dial-up at home and AOL was free in the office. And we started to get the staff on board. And after a couple of months, we needed to get more content up more frequently to get people back. So we would take parts of the magazine and then do in like a partner interview, or we would ask the writer if they could give us just the Q&A and we would run the raw Q&A. And that became the way we started to build out. That's how we launched Wizard School, which now, as you guys know, is now what I run as comic book school. But what we were trying to do is figure out what was that secret sauce that made people want to come back. It wasn't just a repeat of the magazine. It had to be something better. And you have to remember at this time, and you guys are probably very aware of this, Wizard would do all kinds of specials. Now, we, we all look at the half editions, but there were far, far more specials than people remember. We would do a Superman special or a Spider-Man special, an Alex Ross special, a Jim Lee special. And so the editors really understood a complementary product, and they really were able to embrace the online early on. And when fans found out that there were some wizard editors participating on the message boards, well, there you go. That was a big tipping point for us. So it was slow. I mean, now we look back, you know, it took a good year to get our footing and figure out what worked. And once we did that, again, we were still on AOL and the, and the internet wasn't a foregone conclusion. Nobody thought that the web was fully going to take off. Uh, so we just sort of hung in there. We're like, AOL is the web. AOL is the internet for a lot of people in those days. Yeah. My team was not really integrated into the magazine. We were kind of a yes and. But there was a tipping point where we started to really turn a profit. And then we started to show them the numbers, the engagement numbers, because we would get daily and weekly stats. And they started to realize, like, this is really something. And then we started to get the support from the staff where they would start to make things special or they would call it out in the magazine. And then we started to be much more of a synergized publication than just a side project. And would you say that the majority of that engagement was most of it focused, like you're saying, with the wizard school? Well, I mean, I, I got to imagine like the question everybody's asking. So how do I get into comics? What do I have to do to get my, you know, somebody look at my portfolio or whatever? Like, it just sounds like that is what must have been taking place out there. And were there people that eventually broke through and you either you were able to give some sort of break or they found their way into the comics profession? The genesis of Wizard School was because I wanted to run Brutes and Babes. I just thought it was really interesting. And we went along and I coded it all. And, you know, you have to size all the images, a lot of work. And I get ready to go and it was in staging environment. And I go to push it to production and they're like, oh, you can't do that. We, we're not contracted for reuse of Brutes and Babes. I think it was Bart Sears and Andy Smith were working on it. And I just thought, oh man, that's disappointing. And then I just thought, well, what if we created something original? And yeah, there were a lot of people on the board saying like, how do I break into comics? And here I had all these pros who were really glad to have free AOL accounts. And I was like, can you do something with us? And I would, so just wrap your head around this. So like we would get a page of art and Tony Daniel would do a one-on-one -on -one critique of the art, and we would publish it with call-outs. Mark Wade reviewed scripts. Fabian reviewed scripts. We had all kinds of creators. Billy Tucci did a bunch. Jimmy Palmiotti. Casada did a couple. Todd McFarlane did one. And actually, McFarlane, when we started to do the Wizard newsletter, which had a weekly subscription rate, huge. It was huge at the time. McFarlane was one of the people who wrote a weekly column for Wizard Online. It's such a shame that nobody saved any of this, but the somebody somewhere must have saved it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's on some floppy disk somewhere in a basement. <laughs> but can you imagine like knowing that you could send in your script and Wade would review it or Tony Daniel or McFarlane was writing a, a column? I mean, th this was unheard of. It's, and, it's unheard of today. Think of it that way. I mean, like, yeah. So wild. it was just, it became a great place to go. And the more... I did with Wizard School at the time, it started to really become the most popular part of the site. And yeah, there were a couple people who broke out. Kirkman met his first collaborator when they did Battle Pope on the message boards. Huh. And I know that, and Kirkman was at the first Wizard World Chicago, and Russ was like, this guy is super funny. He's doing this Battle Pope. I got a copy of Battle Pope and put him on the stage. And I think it was the first time Kirkman was at a convention and spoke and I put them on there and, and there were like top pros and Kirkman who did had like literally one issue of Battle Pope 
But I, I always had this sense that independent comics were hugely important for people who were breaking in, who wanted to work their way up. And that, to me, was important because I felt like, hey, there were people who did help me on my way up. And I always felt like that's a great opportunity for the rest of us to help the next generation. A lot of wizard people went on to continue working in comics, and a lot of creators said that they emerged out of those message words, built those relationships, and then took off in their own comic book career. Yeah, those were the most passionate people congregated, for sure. And it's so funny when you mentioned Battle Pope, because I remember seeing Battle Pope on the shelves of my local comic book store, because my last name is Pope. And so I'm like, Battle Pope, that's awesome! Say that it'll be worth money one day when he does like a Netflix show and Battle Pope. What is this? Yeah, and I was like, I should have bought it. Why did I buy it? But uh, yeah, so that's that's great. Now, we've kind of teased this here, but I'm very curious. So the AOL relationship, I mean, you are there on the ground floor for AOL. And so how does this relationship build where you start inserting America Online discs being polybagged into issues of Wizard? I mean, this is infamous. There was already so much that was being shoved into those polybags, and all of a sudden now we have a a plastic disc to get us online. Why why don't you tell us about that arrangement? You know, it's funny. The discs were this idea that one of the marketing people had at AOL, and they said, you know, for every every sign-up, And I'll probably get the number wrong, but it's probably not far off. We got $5. Now, when you think about the circulation of Wizard, they saw that the first time we put it in there, we had a huge number of signups and made what they called a bounty. They got a bounty every time you had a sign-up. And we had this big surge, and that was a tipping point. And I think that was the tipping point for when Wizard started to include mentions of Wizard Online in the magazine. I I, I would imagine that there's some association to that. And then, (laughs) you know, Wizard, if one works, 90 is better. (laughs) There was no sense of, like, slowly ramping up. It was always like, let's just see how high the ceiling goes. And they just... No matter how many times they put it in, they were getting these signups. And there was, we were waiting for the diminishing returns and it just wasn't happening. They just kept, and there were real signups. There were people who were coming on and the message boards were exploding. And it was, it became a really exciting time to be working in technology. And at that point, I knew that, I hated to say this, but every time they put those discs in there, that was a nail in the coffin for print. And not just Wizard, but all print. And I knew that that was going to happen. So I stopped pursuing being the news editor. But I I, I will tell you one funny, very funny line that um, my supervisor said at the time. And I won't tell you who it is because he still works in comics. (laughs) But he told me that when this online thing is over, he will consider me as the news editor. And at this point, I wasn't looking to be the news editor anymore. And I said, oh, yeah, you think the the online thing is over? He said, the Internet is a passing fad like pet rocks and hula hoops. <laughs> Whoa. So, and but he's eating his words now. Jeez. Yeah, every once in a while I see him, but I don't put, poke the bear too hard because he was my boss and he did keep me employed and – Gosh darn, he still works in comics and we all work together. Wow. And it's so interesting what you say about, you know, Wizard just doubling down. If it's working, keep doing it. Because that was what they did. If you look at the history of having a poly bag to begin with, they just tried putting a trading card in there, an exclusive trading card. And suddenly that was huge. I mean, according to Pat McCallum's history of the magazine, he's like, the minute we did that, our numbers just shot up. And with each successive issue, the more we put with the magazine as an extra, the more we were selling. And so, yeah, it's just like, just keep going. And, you know, it's pretty soon, yeah, it's, it's posters, it's ash cans, it's whatever it's going to be, you know? And so, yeah, that's that's amazing. Now, this is the question I have because, you know, nowadays, especially the internet, you know, the online space is known as a place of controversy. Do you remember any big, like, blow-ups or any issues that would arise in the message boards? Or was it pretty civil? Or was there ever just publisher that got upset? Like you said, there was not the rivalry, but a little bit of competition with DC. So there any drama that ever existed? Yeah, I mean, message boards, there were trolls from the earliest days, and AOL was built around, you were able to be anonymous on the internet. And I mean, you know, it was long before profile pictures. And yeah, it was the, the, the conversation got pretty raw. Uh, we had certain open forums where people could talk about anything, and they fought. Creators went on and argued 
about reviews, publishers and publicists who went on there. Wow. Yeah, they were on there and people, this was the place to be. You know, we had our troll bombings. We had our message board bombings. I remember we started to do really big chat rooms you know, we started off small with creators. At one point, uh, we got Mark Hamill on, and that was just epic. And I mean, we just, yeah, yeah it was it was really big. I forget how many we have. I, I, I'm sure I still have the chat transcript somewhere, but we, we just had so much activity. So yeah, there was a lot of troll baiting and fighting, and there was everything that you would expect it to be on the internet. But me and Russ, and then I had a bunch of wizard interns who were this is god you guys are like i'm remembering this stuff we had wizard interns and i would find them and there were people generally who would win flash prizes i'd go into the chat room and i'd say you know what was the name on the side of the truck when uh, matt murdoch lost his vision and you know we would use, recycle some of the things we used from the wheel at the conventions and if somebody won it i'd say you know you know direct message me with your mailing address and i'd mail them stuff and then I started to find there were a lot of usual suspects, and then I got them to start help moderating the message boards because they got too big for just me and Russ, and we were publishing. So we actually had community moderators who would alert us, and we would just delete them. We would block people. We would do the whole works. I remember once I went to a con in like Syracuse, and this guy comes up to me, and he's got misty eyes, and he's like, I heard your buddy Sclera. I'm like, I am. And he goes, I just want you to know that I was away for a couple years in jail and you sent me comics and I want you to know how much I appreciate that and he goes it helped me get through it gave me something to do while I stayed inside and I've been approached by people in the military I met a couple at Chicago they met in the message boards they fell in love they met in person and they got married and that's literally just how personal the message boards became and I supported private boards and spinoff boards because I really believed that it was community that made Wizard Online so great. And of course, you know, when we moved to the web, we lost our message boards because there just was no message board technology. And then that was that was a big disappointment. That was a huge blow to Wizard when we moved to the web. Hmm. I, wow. I, I really thought that that story of the guy coming up to you would be like, yo, bro, you deleted my post? What's that all about? That would have been a way better story, but this was more heartwarming. It was a beautiful story. I mean, that's amazing. It's really cool. But I was just like, I was waiting for this. Like, the, the troll came after you. I was like hoping for it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty weak. I'm easy to beat up. Like, and, <laughs> like there's kittens that could beat me up <laughs> so th this is a question that we have and i think i know the answer but it felt like in the period we're in right now we're just entering 1993 as we're covering the magazine and in our episode so obviously like image is a huge thing valiant is a huge thing they are the two big dogs of the new movement of comics and so the question i have is like did you notice like was there any particular like relationship with those publishers during your time there where it was like yeah you know we give them a little extra because they have collaborated with us so much over the years or was it always just like whatever the hot story was at that time that's what we're going to focus on and, and cover and promote honestly i don't know but what i did know was that Wizard would have the ability to take good properties and really draw a spotlight to them. What was noticeable was the creators who would fly in for Marvel or DC and then come out to the suburbs and be walking around the Wizard offices. There were celebrities. Dee Snyder showed up one day. I've seen that picture, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's at my desk. And I, I'm still friends with his son, Jesse. And I think one of the things that was interesting was Garib one day calls me into his office. He goes, come on in, come on in. we got to make a phone call. I make a phone call. And Gene Simmons was on the line. And he had Garib come to the show and we got backstage passes. A couple of us from where there was four of us, including Garib, and he, and he got us tickets. We went backstage, and Sebastian Bach from Skid Row came up to us. Oh, that is a dream for me. You guys, you guys are from Wizard, and we were like, yeah. And and he was a comic fan. He's like, oh, I read Wizard all the time. He knew exactly who all of us were. He knew the masthead. So a lot of comic creators, not just the guys from New York, but everybody would come to the offices, and we'd get invited to all the parties. And that's where you just felt like. This was 
something really special. We didn't know how long it would last. We really had a lot of fun. And it was, again, those parties by Jimmy and Jill were defining for the industry and for me as a professional. Like those parties were epic. And it was great networking. It was great getting to know each other. That's how I got my first comic book writing work. Uh, it was all there in the culture. And people who participated in the culture certainly made a name for themselves. And making a name for yourself, honestly, for Wizard Online, I was just happy to have anybody, you know, talk to me and make time for me. And the people who were good self-promoters, everybody from Billy Tucci to Brian Polito to Mark Wade and all those guys, Fabian, they were all good self-promoters. So they made themselves available to me. And whether or not they saw it as a step down from the magazine, which it probably was at the time, uh, they just saw it as another channel to share their enthusiasm about the work they were doing. And they built their fan base there as well. Yeah, that's great. And so as you're in that environment, like you say, you're you're making connections, you're getting to know people. So did you feel like the creatives on, you know, on any publisher, uh, were they as excited as you were like about the online? Like you said, you're giving them free AOL accounts, but were they excited just for that connection with the fans then? Like, as you say, you know, they're defending themselves or doing all that. Like was, were you becoming a center of, oh yeah, you know, we, we got to get over there with Buddy and talk to the people. People, or was it always by invitation? And they're like, eh, all right, I'll try it out. I would say it's probably more of the latter. I had to sell it. You know, it was not obvious why you would want to go online because at that point, you know, we were working with 72 DPI monitors, slow connections. It was not a great experience. Nobody was screenshotting and saving things. I mean, we, it was just so it was here today, gone tomorrow. Nobody really thought too much about it. Very little of it is saved. So, you know, they saw it probably as just an opportunity, but an extension of the magazine. I'm sure there were people who would have preferred to have been in the magazine that were only an online. Who knows? But I, I know I had to sell it. And going to those parties was helpful. Like I would go there and I'd convince someone to let me do a feature on them. Let me do a long Q&A. And that was at that point, the way I got things done. You'd have to ask them. It was a step down. It definitely, you know, online wasn't what it is today. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in the newspaper recently, my local newspaper, like my parents had to like bring the paper over there like, oh, you're in the newspaper, you were mentioned. And I was like, oh, like I don't even get print anymore. I mean, I get print magazines, but the celebrity was being in that print magazine and I was working on the poor redheaded stepchild of Wizard. But, you know, thanks to the generosity of these people who wanted to get the word out about their books, when we started, we published once a month. Then we got to once a week, and then one day Garrett called me into his office and says, you're going to be the, a news site, and you're going to publish three times a day. And Russ and I were like, what? That was just insane to us. And we managed to get three times a day. It was a lot of code. But, you know, we wrangled our interns, we wrangled freelancers, and we made it happen. And again, majority of that stuff just gone into the ether. Well, and it's really interesting because you mentioned it was gone. We had Rick Marshall on who ended up taking over the website duties, you know, in the mid 2000s. And to his recollection of the way that he recalled everything, it was like the site had almost been a abandoned by the time he was coming on. It wasn't an editorial site anymore. It was just a sales site and it was basically, you know, just here's our product, buy our stuff. So when you began creating, you know, the wizardworld.com and, and getting onto the website, like you said, saying goodbye to the AOL chat rooms and all those things, what was the evolution of that process to the point where you ended up not being in charge of it anymore? And did you see that change take place? So I'm going to give you my best Cliff Clavin, little known fact there. Um, <laughs> so I left and handed the reins over to Maureen McTeague, who came over from DC's PR department. So she was one of the publicists there. When I was leaving, Maureen took over. And not long after that, Mike Dolce took over after that. So Mike is still in the business. He still publishes. Uh, Maureen, I think, might be a teacher now. But right at the time... And a lot of people don't know this. Wizard Online became a separate company and we were spun off into a dot com. And well, that was a thing because they had to do that because of legal rights, because like Apple has its own thing for iTunes or different corporations under a parent LLC. Usually that's that's not uncommon. Yeah, it was. And so Russ and I were employees in the new company and 
I don't know who it was. Guy came in and they had an office in Manhattan and it had everything, the beanbag chairs and the razor scooters. It, it was the picture of an early dot com. And yeah. <laughs> I went there and we were doing the site, you know, business as usual. We were doing the site publishing three times a day and they started bulking up staff and I remember the guy saying to me, you know, we had this huge building in Congress, New York. And I said, well, why are, why are you not in Congress? And he goes, every dot com has to have a great address. And what's better than New York City? You know, you have to be in a major city. I said, yeah, except Apple and Microsoft. You know? <laughs> and, you know, he was I free. They didn't last long, but we had gotten shares in this dot com and then the bubble burst. And I was. I saw it coming. I was like, Russ, you got to get out. It's going to burst because we were no longer under the official wizard banner. It was truly an entrepreneurial endeavor. And hey, I could be a, I could have, it could have taken off. I could have been a billionaire, but I saw at that point the way things were being run. And I was like, what? It just flew in the face of everything that I knew. You know, like we had this great place in Congress and then there was this place in New York where they were doing advertising. That main, main advertising was out of Manhattan, which made sense. But then they put the dot com in there and that was the beginning of the end. So as that was happening, then did you move away from the online but get back into some type of writing and contributing to the print magazine? Or what was the relationship by the time you were moving your way out of that position? So I had done a bunch of writing for the magazine, but it was it was getting really hard. I mean, the the pressure of running the online department and the, the team was growing. We had more people. We had more responsibility. We were publishing on AOL and the web. Uh, we were uh, working on a couple of other smaller things. There was Wizard TV. So I was having less time to write for the magazine. And I started becoming really interested in wanting to right and i started you know, listen it's not the most ethical thing in the world let's just say <laughs> at the time <laughs> you know i had this position of i could walk into marvel or dc and take a meeting and i started to pitch to editors and the person who worked for me glenn turned me on to deadpool and i just my head spun joe kelly was writing i was like this is the most amazing thing and i set my mind to write for deadpool and i got in did a couple of small text pieces for the marvel millennial visions and they had x-men marvel a couple others and then i got a chance to work with jimmy pomiati uh, my first issue of deadpool was just as i was leaving Wizard uh, was Deadpool number 49, and it was started just at the tail end of Wizard, and I wanted to get in on the creative side. And that was a pretty big change for me. It was one of the things that helped me think, you know, maybe I can't be on both sides. Maybe I can't be writing for Wizard and writing for Marvel at the same time. And I kind of started to make that move and then the dot com, and it just seemed like the right time. And of course, as you know, my my writing career at Marvel has like it's like blockbuster level to high write all <laughs> now. So turned out maybe not to be the best decision in the world at the time, but I rolled the dice. I gave it a shot. You got your, your hands in the Deadpool pie somewhere. You Rob Liefeld, Joe Kelly, Fabian, all you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I stand, I stand shoulder to shoulder with all of those guys. <laughs> they consider me a peer. Buddy though. You, you're like in my head, Literally yesterday, I was looking up on eBay, Marvel Millennial Visions. Like, literally yesterday, I was like, I gotta find this book. I, I haven't seen it in so long, I wanted to find it. And then you mentioned it today, and I was like, is this guy, like, in my house watching me? Like, I am. I am. <laughs> he does know how to use the web. He might have been able That's to right. hack my eBay account. That's what happened. I know it. <laughs> when, you go, when you get that issue, there were I think there were three of them. There was X-Men Millennial Visions, Marvel Millennial Visions, and something else. And I wrote a lot of the text pieces. And it's hard to see because the bylines are a little bit wonky. But if you look, try to count how many of those Millennial Visions ideas that either I wrote or other people wrote that actually became Marvel stories. You would be surprised at how many of those actually – and I, I can't – you know, I, they probably sold like seven copies each, so it wasn't like they, they made a ripple. But it was just – we had our finger on the pulse when we were doing this. My editor was Mike Martz, who's now the editor of Aftershock. But it was early work. It was a lot of early work. And basically, I'll tell you how it happened. Mike would either say, here's a picture of something that was drawn by, you know, pick a person. What's the story behind it? And I would just get this art, and I would just write a story like I write a you know 150 words or something 
and then they would put it in the magazine or Mike would say, do, do something with this character. We're going to do something with uh, Elsa Bloodstone. I remember I was like, okay, well, then I wrote 150 words. And then you look at some of the stuff that's come out now and you go, huh? I look at that and I go, why aren't those worth thousands of dollars? Cause I have like 150 of them in a box somewhere. You know? <laughs> Could give them all away at Christmas. No, huh? they, they line bird cages around the world. <laughs> but buddy by all accounts i mean that is how stan lee got started why are you not editor-in-chief at marvel right now he was writing those backup captain america stories i am so with you i am so with you why why am i not bigger and i gotta just tell you i just i can't figure it out i should be like a superstar but maybe it's because i'm not a very good writer but i think either way <laughs> i i had my little time there at marvel i still do things here and there actually uh, my name's just 25 years working in the business. My name's finally in a DC comic. Yeah. So I've done a good, good amount for Marvel. You know, when, when all the other people probably turn something down or the deadline is incredibly short, I'm there. You're the man. (laughs) I'm a last minute guy. So you said something very early on in our conversation that I, I really connected with. So I wanted to bring it up before I forgot. So when you were a kid, how you got into comics was you, you know, you weren't a big reader, but because your parents thought the pictures would help you read, I had the same story more or less with my parents. Like I didn't want to pick up a book if my life depended on it. <laughs> but my mother and father were like, here, I know you like Batman because you watched that cartoon show. Let's give you this book. They didn't realize how violent it was at you know, <laughs> seven years old when I was reading it or whatever. But it was a very similar thing, and it was the, the pictures that helped me learn to read, and, and that's really important. And another thing that you mentioned that I, I, I really want to talk about is you kept saying several times is, while at Wizard, if people bought into the culture? And I think that's really, really important because I feel like we've spoken to people who some were definitely all in on the culture and some who were a little bit less and so – can you tell us about what the culture was like a little bit? I'm really interested. Like, I, From the early time toward your latter part of the career there. I love that question. The part about reading with pictures, I think we are all descendants of the people who painted stories on the walls of caves, right? Like like somebody killed like a Tyrannosaurus Rex and everybody was celebrating. And then one guy goes into a cave with his friends like, oh, we have to document this. Like we, that's in our DNA. And it makes no sense whatsoever. But when we meet each other, you go, yeah, that's probably true. We are probably the direct descendants of people who made cave paintings, which is why you can probably close your eyes, imagine how many people are on the street that you live on and then how many of those people collect comics like you? And there's not that many. So I think we are a very small percentage, which is what makes Comic-Cons and Wizards so amazing is because we finally find our tribe. We are genetically predisposed to respond positively to visual stories. And I think that there's just some of us who just have that in our DNA. Put that on a bumper sticker right there. Yeah, profound. <laughs> so the culture at Wizard, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, there were certainly people who, who were all in. And I, I, I was one of those all in people. And sure, on a Thursday night after work, I would hop in the car uh, with Mike Martz or somebody else and some of the other Wizard folks. And we would go to these parties. And we were all in because this became our friend base. It was not unusual to go to the office on a Sunday. And find people there playing Magic the Gathering or just reading comics or just hanging out. It was not unusual for that kind of culture where people would say, oh, it's Monday. I would be like, psych, it's Monday. Like, I really I actually looked forward to going to the office because there was such a feeling of camaraderie. There was such a feeling that you were part of something that mattered to People just like you, like you, like you say, you're probably you responded to that. There's innumerable parents who probably did the same thing and their kids just didn't respond. But we are those people. And that was our tribe. And I felt like once I found that tribe, that was it. Those are the people I wanted to be in my life. And they went to my wedding. They've been there for the births of my children. I've been there for theirs. We've mourned the losses of friends. And it and it really was a moment of magic where all these things came together. There were people at Marvel and DC and Harris Comics and Crusade who were all in the New York area, and we all wanted to be part of the same thing, Dynamite. We all wanted to be part of the same thing, and we would all descend to these locations where we found each other, and we didn't have to explain to each other. 
And there was this evolution where we said, this is just getting better and better. And then the money started flowing in and the shows were getting optioned and comics were selling huge numbers. And when there's that much money, there's great parties and everybody has fun. And it was just an incredible time. So at a certain point, the party ended. A lot of the friendships remain, but it was I, I don't know what the culture is like now, but at the time and people didn't have cell phones. They weren't constantly checking phones. There was just it was just we were there and we were talking and we we bonded with each other and creators would come from California or England or all over the world. And then they would descend on these parties that Jimmy and Joe would throw. And it was great. And then Wizard had their own parties. Wizard had costume parties and different kinds of events and do video game parties and there was a ping pong table and you'd get called in because you were up and you had to like leave your desk to go play around of N64 Mario Brothers or you would be up <laughs> your turn to compete and they had a ping pong table and somebody got like movie theater chairs and they would set them up around there and who was roller skating inside the warehouse I mean it was just a crazy <laughs> fun time uh, we always love hearing that. that. That has been consistent, that what we saw coming out of the pages of the magazine was really what it was like. You were all professionals, most of you with journalism degrees and comic book nerds looking to have a fun time together. That, that brotherhood, that fraternity there, that camaraderie, it, it seems to have always come through. Do you have any particular like mementos or things that you've held onto that like signify that for you? Where you're like, oh, and whenever I look at this, it just reminds me of that day. Yeah, I am an obsessive collector. So everything, if we were doing this on video, you'd be like, how much stuff did you save? I'm like, I saved everything. So oh, wow. um, one of my favorites is probably there was a wizard made box cutters and sent them to retailers to which Jim Fox was <laughs> like, someone's going to knife somebody in the streets of New York and they're going to have a wizard return address on it. <laughs> <laughs> So I keep that on my desk as a reminder of like not all of the things we made were fully appropriate. But yeah, I mean, it was great when you would get stuff like all the half issues and the ace editions and the T-shirts. We had these wonderful boxes. And that's what I said. I look forward on Monday and you'd see people loading up comps and video games and they just jam them in there and in the warehouse if there was too much stuff for you you would just have this overflow box and at one point there was like 20 long boxes of stuff with statues and all kinds of things and not just wizard swag but like every company swag we got everything from everybody and you talk about your archives dan riley had the wizard archives which had all the silver age marvel and dc books all the originals behind lock and key and metal door but like you could go there and pull out key marvel and dc issues fill out a little library form and dan would let you check it out and he'd follow up but yeah we we had so much great swag and we would give it to each other we'd go to somebody's office at marvel or dc or dorkers we go here's some stuff and they go here's some stuff from us and there was just so much stuff and there was so much joy like everybody yeah. just had so much joy and the legendary wizard prize closet was just joyful and somebody get to go into the prize closet and pick a prize out for somebody who helped you out and you go in and be like can i take this you know clayton moore session they'd be like, yeah go ahead take it out and you mail it out and you'd send it to somebody and that might be their biggest moment with wizard but like that was every day for us now it makes me wonder did you ever have a the wizard credit card or b those wizard rings that were like shaped like a diamond or a Superman emblem. No. And there was also a wizard varsity jacket that I didn't get my hands yeah. on either. <laughs> Had I gotten a wizard ring? Yeah, I'd still have it. Of course, man. I mean, duh. I mean, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> In fact, somebody was, there was a private wizard group on uh, Facebook. And every once in a while, somebody will be like, I found this in a drawer. And somebody pulled out the wizard varsity jacket. I was like, oh my God, I remember that. That is fantastic. All right. Well, as we close out here, buddy, we have a question we we ask all our guests because there there is someone who you mentioned up top and he is a figure of mystery he is the big cheese himself garib sheamus and so we ask you garib sheamus cool or fool for me cool garib actually was very generous to me uh, and treated me really well. He always treated me with respect. And then after Wizard Days, I ran into him a couple times in real life. Uh, we, we live not too far from each other. So I'm I'm curious what other people said, but for me, Garrett was always a good guy. I, I really had a good relationship with just about everybody there. And I'll never tell who I didn't have a good relationship with, but I will tell you. <laughs> 
that a good uh, 90% percentile of, of the relationships were uh, were really great. And Garib, he was good to me, I have to say. He really, he treated me well. Well, as long as he remembered your name, apparently that meant <laughs> you were on great footing with him, because that's the number one thing, is everybody had met him several times during their tenure, and he always introduced himself. Hi, I'm Garib Sheamus. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I've been working for you for several years now, or after the fact, and, you know, in other business capacities beyond. <laughs> and so we remind him, uh, he used to work for us. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a secret Garib story, and Garib, if he ever hears this, will probably get furious, but it's a true story, <laughs> and then I'll leave you with this. So sometimes on big features on the website, Garib sometimes wanted to see redesigns, um, and he would force redesigns. Like, we would have to redesign that website, like, once a year. Like he'd get tired of the design. So he would always have comments, and Russ would pour a lot of energy into those designs and Garib would always have comments and, and Russ would make them and he, it would break Russ's design, right? Like Russ would, like he would suffer for these designs. And then after you coded it, it was a lot of work. Because remember we were doing hand code at that point, you know, laying out every image. And we did what was called, somebody had recommended it to me and I don't remember who, but what Disney calls it was the hairy armed princess. So in order to get <laughs> Something past Roy Thomas, uh, Walt's younger brother, Roy always felt like he needed to make a change or a comment. And so the animators, if they didn't want anything changed, they would draw hair on the arms of a princess, to which we would then they would get their comment and be like, that's ridiculous. So every once in a while, I would say to Russ, this is a great design, but you have to put in something blatantly wrong. He'd say, why would I do that? I'd say, because Garib needs to make a change. And he would find this thing it was red and yellows and all the colors really popped and then russ would put some like hot pink or hot green dissonant color in there and immediately garib would go everything's great but you got to change it we have, like great feedback thank you so much <laughs> that's fantastic russ was like it worked and i was like it totally works and then <laughs> that was our little trick so garib i'm really sorry but in that one moment you always cool to me but we did have to work around the inevitable comment but uh it worked and it was it's a neat trick even today oh, fantastic well buddy again thank you so much for your time it is truly been so much fun to hear your stories and your experience but you mentioned you know that back in the day you were running the wizard school but now you've uh, got another place where people can find you what can you tell them about that oh thank you for the lob for the spike i appreciate that i now continue to write comic books like I said, a little bit of Marvel, a little bit of DC. Every once in a while, i get some indie work done. My main focus, though, in comics these days is something called Comic Book School, which is a free resource for people who want to learn about the craft and business of making comics. And it's at comicbookschool.com and on all social media at comicbookschool. And currently we're running an eight-page challenge because I do panels every year at Comic-Cons. And this year we're not having Comic-Cons. And I built message boards in January before the big COVID thing. And we started this eight-page challenge in around February before the COVID thing, where we would help people through the steps. And we're guiding people like a year-long NaNoWriMo. And just in time for New York Comic-Con in October, we're putting together a free downloadable anthology uh, that will feature the work of people who are building in real time. So we, we plotted together, we scripted together, we thumbnailed, penciled, inked. So we're just coming off of inks and moving into colors, and we'll do lettering and then compositing. And we're teaching people how to make their own comics. And I'm a big believer in independent comics. And that's what my focus is, is helping people who are either working and want to level up or want to break in for the first time. And Comic Book School is that network and that foundation, hopefully, that will enable some people to step up in their career. In a couple of years from now, maybe I'll be saying, oh, this person or that person who is now very popular and successful got their start on Comic Book School. So that's my, uh, my current passion. Yeah, a little bit of a thin thread back to the wizard AOL days. Buddy, I actually, Adam, you can edit this out, but I, I just, I'm, I'm doing a, a, an MFA in creative writing, and last month I wrote an eight-page script, and I'm looking to get people to critique it or, or see how I can get you know, an artist to help illustrate it of some sort. Can I message you on Instagram and we could talk about it offline of this? Don't you dare edit this up. This is great. And, and the answer is yes, comma, and yes. And I will tell you that just tonight, just tonight, we announced that we're adding a prose area to the eight-page challenge, and we are launching our very first helper challenge. We had someone just like you who said, I, I don't know how to do it. Can someone help me? 
And we created a separate board for them where we called all the people and we said, who wants to work on this? And we are actively doing that. So yes, you can, and I hope you do, reach out to me directly and register on the message boards. But that's exactly what it's for. And you'd be amazed at how many people reach out and goes, I, I would love to do this. So if it's a prose piece, we're going to get an artist to do a single panel, like an illuminated manuscript, or helping somebody to realize their dream of doing an eight-page story. Yes and yes. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll reach you out. Got you got my email address. It's pretty straightforward. You can tell people. People can email me if they ever have questions about comics and breaking in and wanting to level up their game or just have a question. Buddy at comicbookschool.com. Always happy to hear from people who aspire uh, to make comics. Ah, oh, like the Johnny Appleseed of comics. That's great. Well, buddy, thank you again for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for being part of another episode of The Wizard Files. And we hope that you look forward to more upcoming interviews. And in fact, if you are one of the many wizard staffers who are enjoying hearing your former co-workers share the experience from their point of view, we want to invite you to reach out to us at Wizards Comics on Twitter or wizardscomicspod at gmail.com let us know if you are ready to share your story because no matter how mundane it seemed to you it is absolutely fascinating to all of us who are involved in the wizards community we absolutely loved what you produced and any insight you can give is just another window into what we enjoyed and what made it so special for all those years so don't be shy reach out to us we want to hear from you So, until next time, we're closing this file, and keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.